It all really started when I picked up a black walnut. You can really make ink from just about anything. New York rust, carbonized peach pits, an antique Roman nail. The ink that I make is alive, it's unpredictable. It's fugitive, it's kind of on the run. I started sending my ink out to artists that I love all around the world. What these materials do in other people's hands, how they bring them to life. This is part of the alchemy. What I'm hoping to do is draw people's attention to minute differences. Wow, this is freaking beautiful. These inks feel like they're living. Slowing people down, having them think about how place and materials come together. Maybe it needs a little drop of blood to activate it. Uh, joining me today online is the director of a film called The Color of Ink. It's Brian D. Johnson on the line today. And we're talking about this documentary because the Alberta premiere is going to be happening as part of Cuff Docs on Thursday, November 24th at 6.30 p.m. at the Globe Cinema in Calgary. And uh, the great thing is, is that Brian is also going to be in attendance for this for a Q&A post-screening as well. Brian, welcome to Moving Radio. Hi, Christian. Thanks for having me here. Great. Yeah, we're honored to have you, not only because of, uh, you know, your own history as broadcaster and filmmaker, but also because the color of ink is fantastic. Now, I'm just going to gush most of the time about this because I really love the film. <laughs> so this will be one of those soft interviews where, like, all the interviewer does is just tell you how awesome you are. So I apologize. I, 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 won't, I won't hold you back on that. Uh, <laughs> I'll just let you try to find the words, you know. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if I'll be able to articulate it properly. The film in the lines uncovers the mystery and the power of our oldest medium. And, and it's right in the title, it's ink. And this all kind of starts with ink maker, Jason Logan, as you start to follow him. Can you tell us a little bit about how this project gets started and how the, the world of Jason Logan kind of like opens up this world of ink to us that I never knew really existed? Well, I knew Jason, my, my former life for decades was as a film critic and a journalist. Uh, I worked at McLean's for literally three decades. And Jason, I first met Jason there where he was brought in by Ken White as sort of the uber art director for all, you know, for, for McLean's and later for all 36 Rogers magazines. But Jason was not a corporate guy. He was one of those guys that you bring in to think outside the box for you when you can't do that for yourself. He's always been that kind of guy. And I didn't get to know him very well, but I thought he was pretty cool. And then when I was making my first documentary feature um, after I left McLean's, uh, Al Purdy was here, which is about the great Canadian poet, Al Purdy, dead poet. I ran into Jason again because I interviewed Margaret Atwood one afternoon for the film because she was a pal of Al Purdy's. And she said, did you know that the statue of Al Purdy in Queen's Park in Toronto has a Twitter feed? I said, no, I, I didn't know that. Yeah, this person's been tweeting. We don't know who it is. It's anonymous for like uh, months. And she follows him. And he, he just sort of observes what's happening around the statue, what's in his eyeline. That evening, I went to the, to the Griffin Poetry Awards Gala. Someone taps me on the shoulder. It's Jason Logan. He says, hi, hi, you, you've got to introduce me to Margaret Atwood. I said, well, actually, she's not here, but it's funny you should ask, because I was interviewing her this afternoon. He said, I, I got to give her something. I got to give her something. And then he blurted out, I'm the voice of the statue of Al Purdy. 
I said, wait a minute. I just heard about this thing for the first time this afternoon, and now you're telling me you're the guy who's been doing this. And what's <laughs> the reason, of course, he identified himself like that is because he knew that Atwood was a follower and he was trying to get to her. And what did he want to give her? A bottle of ink. Because Jason and I both left McLean's, not at the same time. I became a filmmaker. He became an ink maker. It's pretty bizarre because uh, we ended up putting his tweets as the statue of Alperti, as interstitials in my film. And they were the, mom the moments of the purest poetry in the film. So and essentially, J Jason came on board as a kind of anonymous writer with these wonderful tweets. They were just like these moments of Zen in the middle of the film with no story advancement, no information, which is what I love in a documentary where you're not advancing the damn story. What happened is we went overboard. We, we shot him around the statue. We didn't use any of the footage at all. It was on the cutting room floor. We even shot him making black walnut ink, which was his origin ink, the first ink he ever made, which came from a black walnut tree overlooking the statue. And we shot it in 4K, and it was really beautiful, gorgeous footage. We just dumped it, right? And then after a while, after the movie came out, Jason said, well, um, what are you doing with that footage? And could you cut me a reel? So I cut him a reel for his for his ink making, Instagram, whatever. And that's the way movies start. You know, you, ha you have footage and the footage is like a seed that gets planted and then you start shooting more footage and then you're, in, you're into it. But what attracted me about making this film and why I wanted to make it wasn't really to tell the story of ink or the history of ink, although that's kind of the framework of it. But it was to see the world of ink on a page that Jason creates when he does these things called ink tests. And he's like an alchemist and he puts all these natural uh, colors from materials that he forages out in the, the wild, the urban wild mostly back then, uh, rail paths and culverts and etc. And the, the kaleidoscopic psychedelic alchemy of these colors coming together and the ink seems to move of its own accord. And that's where a light went off. And I said, wow, this is kind of like a secret world where ink seems to have this life. I mean, he thinks of his all of his inks because they come from, you know, really non-synthetic materials as being alive and changing and not color fast. And, and the notion of ink being alive and that that was kind of our secret protagonist, our, invis our, our, our silent protagonist, that sort of developed over the course of the film and it never let us down. We just followed the ink. And it took us, and, and Jason sent his ink to, to write his first book, Make Ink was the title of it. He sent his ink to artists around the world, everybody from Robert Crumb to Margaret Atwood to, you know, um, painters, uh, cartoonists. And we kind of followed that model where there's a series of satellite characters around Jason, like Jason's inks are nothing until they fall into the hands of an artist or a writer or somebody like that. So, so the, these other characters, kind of, it was a bit like Al Purdy, where we brought in a whole bunch of artists and Purdy was at the center, except this time I was working with a, a living poet instead of a dead one. <laughs> there were a lot of advantages to that. Occasionally disadvantages, you know, you can do what you like to a dead poet. <laughs> That's right. You know, you mentioned that film as well. I would seek that out because I saw that as well. And Al Purdy, fantastic film as well. But we're talking about the color of ink today. That's, yeah. a, that's an amazing background about it. And, you know, a lot of the things that you said kind of ring completely true because I felt like it was just like washing over you and you did get the sense the ink and the application of it whether it's to uh, paper or to a human skin right you have so many different ways that you look at this 
that it becomes almost a character in itself Mm -hmm. and it's almost kind of like uh operatic in some ways visually Hmm. and like a ballet in the way that the ink was moving so i loved how it's almost like the ink is the protagonist the main character of this and everybody else is just here to kind of talk about it and service it in some ways uh is that kind of how it started to evolve and you started to look at it because I i thought maybe at first i'm like oh it's about jason and i was like i think it's about jason but it's really about how he's a conduit for what the ink creates well, it's interesting, you know, um, the easy way to do it would be to make it a portrait of the artist. Yeah. And even though Jason is a bit of a craftsperson, not technically an artist as an ink maker, he really is an artist and a graphic designer and all kinds of things. Um, but both Jason and I didn't want to go that route. And I know my executive producer, Ron Mann, who's an amazing filmmaker in his own right, documentary maker, made all kinds of countless films. Ron kept pushing me to say, well, Jason's your story. Jason's your story. And I say, well... I said, if it turns into a portrait of the artist, I'm okay with that. But that's not where we start, you know? I'm, and both Jason and I kind of wanted it to be the story of ink because it was just more interesting. And also the reason I wanted to make the film in the first place was to see, you know, that square foot of paper with that ink test on it, to see that incredibly mobile, um, hypnotic, immersive world blown up on a big screen. Because I thought, that's something I've never seen before. And as a film critic, I was always looking for something I'd never seen before. Because after a while, when you're seeing, you know, three, four films a week or three or four films a day during a film festival, pretty soon it's hard to get your attention unless it's something that seems truly original and striking. And that's the kind of film I want to make. And so I I try to veer away from it being a conventional film in that sense. Yet on the other hand, there's no real auteuristic or stylistic touches in it. I kind of didn't want to upstage the subject uh, because the whole notion of this is naturalness. Jason is taking Basically, he's taking this medium ink, which has been historically used ever since cave paintings, which he considers ink, as a kind of conduit of expression and messaging of some kind, uh, ritual messaging, uh, which distinguishes it from painting in a way. There's an iconography to it, that, whether it's language or um, stick figures. Well, what he does with ink, he goes to the ingredients, the primal ingredients, whether it's um, wild grapes or... Uh, or oak galls or whatever it might be. And he looks at the provenance of the ink and he finds a narrative in the ink. So the ink isn't telling the story, isn't being used to tell a story. The ink is actually telling its own story. Like it's going in reverse, if you like, from the ingredients. It's saying where it comes from. And I mean, it's the first ink he ever made, uh, one of the first inks he made. The first one was that black walnut, but the next one was wild grape. And that, it was like about, a year in, a year or two into into production before I he finally told me that well the first time he became aware of color was his mother who died when he was nine years of age showing him the wild grape vines and this world of wild grapes uh, was like a portal into another world partly because they were by the train tracks and that was like when you're a kid that's a sort of another kind of portal and so there's so much romance and history and almost melodrama personal a personal story associated with it and we never we didn't start with that but it kind of started to emerge you know and we ended up 
getting this footage from a documentary film made about his mother when she was dying of cancer. And, and they began to see where Jason's kind of curious, wandering, solitary, somewhat melancholy soul came from. I mean, I'm kind of interested in melancholy and sadness in films, no matter what they are, because I think no matter how light and bright and beautiful something is, if it doesn't have that undertone that addresses the fact that we all die and that there are tragedies in our lives, then it's not really a movie, you know? <laughs> I, I kind of like to shade in the darkness. And, and also ink is dark, you know? The default color is black. How much blacker could it be? The answer is none, to quote Nigel Tufnell and Spinal <laughs> Tap. <laughs> well, look, uh, you know, you already uh, win a moving radio no prize for dropping a Spinal Tap reference on well. what is what is really an incredibly uh, poignant and pretty serious film. So I'm like, I like that you're riding the line, Brian. That's very nice. Uh, we try to have a bit of humor in it. I mean, there's something yeah, quite absurd yeah. about what Jason is doing. The, the extent to which he goes to sort of make ink out of rust and the rusty yeah. rail spikes that he keeps like brewing in, you know, this this solution, this water for like, I mean, he picks up one of them and it was one of the, one of the early scenes, we're not giving anything away here. You know, he's showing, showing his rail spikes and he says, well, so this one's been sitting there for years. <laughs> you know, and there is something of the mad scientist in what he's doing. It's wacky. You know, it's bonkers. Yeah, absolutely. Our guest today on Moving Radio is Brian D. Johnson. We're talking about the documentary film, The Color of Ink. It's going to make its Alberta premiere as part of Cuff Docs. It's going to be screening at the Globe Cinema on Thursday, November 24th at 6.30 p.m. Uh, you can get tickets at the door. Of course, you can go to uh, Cuff uh, online. You can get tickets there, uh, however you want to do it. But I implore you to see it because not only are you going to see a fantastic film, but Brian is going to be in the house to do a Q&A after the Thursday November. November 24th screening. You're so good at the plugs. It's like, it's like, like let's pause for a commercial for the film. It's really amazing. <laughs> well, that's, I kind of look at this almost as it should be a commercial for the film in some ways, but a really well-crafted infomercial, right? That's what we're really trying to get at. <laughs> you know, one of the kind things, and I think very accurate things that Slash Film had said out there about The Color of Ink is it said, one of the most effortlessly beautiful documentaries I've ever watched. And I think that's pretty accurate because it doesn't feel like you're simply recording how the medium is used, but you've talked about it before. It's like the ink dances under your fingertips or whatever, you know, medium you're using in order to, to put it on canvas or to put it on paper to, like I said, put it on a person. One of the people that I talked to you about before is your cinematographer, Nicholas Depansier, who is uh, got quite a track record himself, Canadian screen award winner. That's for sure. How did you, talk to him about approaching shooting this film was that something that kind of organically happened while you were shooting it or was that have its roots in the origins of the early stuff you did with jason in that reel that you were trying to make and you already knew you had a road and an end to it or was it just happening at the moment well no it actually goes back to even before then because i started out making short films and uh the first two sort of professional budgeted shorts that i made uh nick uh well the first one i shot myself and then the second one, I got Nick to shoot. So that was my first thing. But he, the reason I got into filmmaking was just like any other person who stumbles into iMovie editing and consumer camcorders and things like that. I got pulled in 
because it was so accessible. I'd been watching and writing about film for 30 years, never really had ambitions to make a film. And I just, I didn't come to it out of ambition or the desire for another career. I got kind of hooked on the medium and on the visuals. And what interested me about documentary, the kind of documentaries I like to make, especially with the shorts and well, beginning with the shorts, was when the, what, what was blew my mind is when you looked at something through a lens a process, something about the lens changed. It didn't feel like you were documenting it. You saw something that you didn't see there with the naked eye. And what interested in me was framing things and looking at things in such a way that you could see something metaphysical about it. So after spending so long as a journalist, I wasn't looking for to translate, to transfer my reportorial skills, such as they were, to another medium. What interests me about documentary and even films that I've watched like Errol Mars, The Thin Blue Line. I mean, that's an investigative documentary that got a guy wrongly convicted for murder out of jail. But what's fantastic about the film is how kind of metaphysical and mesmerizing the reconstructions are in that film. And Errol Morris is a philosopher and he always he's one of our most famous documentary filmmakers and he talked about metaphysics. So to me, the line between nonfiction and fictions always bugged me in writing in terms of there being a hierarchy where fiction is superior, kind of artistically to nonfiction, never bought that. And what I want is, is our images that cast a spell. Well, Nick is totally about that. He's totally into finding a frame. He's a very receptive filmmaker. He doesn't impose the lens on something. He moves it swims around and settles in until he finds it and then it's a bit like kind of wildlife photography really he understands you've got to just be and it's a very zen-like approach uh, as opposed to sort of the run and gun you know shaky cam sort of rock star kind of cinematography that you know has a certain following uh, among uh, young filmmakers and the great thing also about having Nick with you, uh, traveling with Jason and I to places like Death Valley and and uh, California, all over the place, New York. When he's shooting, he kind of vanishes. Jason keeps noticing that. Like Jason was able to perform and be unselfconscious with a camera on him. This is somebody who's never done that before. It was like working with an actor. And a lot of the time he was foraging for ink ingredients alone in some wild landscape or under a Manhattan bridge. And I kind of wanted him to talk. And he said, well, how should I do that? I said, don't talk to me because that implies that there's somebody on the other side of the camera. Just why don't you sort of think out loud, you know, talk to yourself, mumble. And it was great because it's like neither Nick nor I were really there. I mean, we were there between shots and setups and all the rest of it. But but once the camera rolled, there was it was kind of magic time. And Jason kind of fell into his whatever world he <laughs> he kind of routinely inhabits when he he does this kind of work. And it's the same thing with the ink making. Oh, well, that was interesting, though, because once he started, you couldn't just stop him. So that was kind of, there was a lot of setup. And then, I mean, talk about Verite. There's a, there's a scene with a Japanese calligrapher, Koji Kakanuma, who's kind of a, he's an iconic Japanese calligrapher. He works on a massive scale with a brush the size of a broomstick. We set up this shoot. It was COVID time. We couldn't travel to, to Japan. We didn't travel to three out of the seven countries we filmed in because of COVID. And COVID put the brakes on travel. So we shot with remote crews. And in this case, 
we had a Japanese director of photography in Toronto who worked with his crew remotely, and we spent weeks setting up the shot. But once Koji began to do his performance with that brush, it only lasts sort of, what, 15 seconds or so? You know, 15, 20 seconds, the most. And you're spending a fortune to do this one, what amounts to one shot, although there's several cameras on it, so we, you shoot it every which way. It's kind of like shooting an action sequence. It's like shooting a car crash, you know, <laughs> you, coverage, coverage, coverage. But you realize that no matter what you're doing with the cameras, the only thing is happening is what's happening. And I guess one of the things I liked about shooting this film is I just love, I love films where you get to watch people paint and draw and write and macro close-ups of of the hand on the page. And one of the reasons I think that it's so great is, is that there's a level of improvisation there. Like when a painter is painting, I mean, they may have a plan to what they're painting, but the actual movement, and it's like a calligrapher, a calligrapher may be writing words, but you know, the rhythm of a calligraphic pen moving across a page, it's, um, it's like the choreography of ink. So I like the fact that it relates. To me, the film was really musical. And I spent a lot, I did, I worked a lot with music with my composer Don Kerr and I spent way too much money on licensing some pretty big songs because I thought that I just love music and films in general whether it's Tarantino or whether it's Paul Thomas Anderson or whatever um, or Scorsese but but it's also breaking a rule of documentary because usually you don't use music in documentaries the same way you use it in drama usually use it to illustrate or to, you know, but I was using it the same way that my models were like Paul Thomas Anderson and Tarantino and Scorsese. That's all I wanted to, I would have put more in if I had more money. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting that you talk about this musicality to it, because I feel like there's a very distinct and purposeful rhythm that, that runs throughout the film. And I'm sure that's something that you and the editor, Robert Kennedy were uh, talking about when you had it. And I also imagine I'm like, how much insane footage you have of Jason putting all this stuff together and just the, the amount of footage you'd have to shoot in order to get there. And then also the problem of like, I didn't realize that calligraphy scene, which is great in the film. You're like, oh, that was 15 seconds. <laughs> and it took us forever <laughs> to set up. I'm like, so there's all these different elements to it. Talk just a little bit about Robert Kennedy and where you were coming from in editing the film and how you make that another layer of musicality almost to the film. Yeah, well, Robert's a great editor. It's the first time I'd worked with him, but he has worked with Ron Mann, my executive producer. Ron's executive produced all my films. He was the guy who sort of nudged me into making films after I showed him some of my amateur stuff. Ron has made films like um, Grass, the story of, you know, marijuana illegalized, illegalization. Carmine Street Guitars, music fans might know that film, a film about Robert, comic book confidential about cartoonists like Robert Crumb and so on. Robert's been his editor all the way through. And I learned a lot from Robert, you know, when you first, like I've done a lot of editing myself and, you know, I did some editing on this film. I did montage sequences and music sequences myself, just like I did some shooting on this film. I mean, I like to have my hands on the, <laughs> on the wheel at certain points, but I learned a lot from Robert. You know, a, a lot of, when you first start cutting, you, you love to cut to music, you know, and that's how you get, you start doing it. And then you realize when you're working with real footage and not just sort of doing like music video kind of abstract stuff, when you're working with a story that Robert just strips the sound right out and he works with the images. He cuts with the images and then 
he does the visual cut and then like even keeps the dialogue separate um, for a while. And I said, well, why do you do that, Rob? Why don't you just leave the dialogue on there when you're cutting? And he said, well, because you have to see that sound and picture are two separate things. You know, and it's interesting because that probably evolved from the days when, well, when with film, they were two really separate things. The film did not record the sound. But I, I think by doing that, he finds the inherent music, visual musicality, that the visuals have a music, they have a rhythm. And then if you, if you cut something that works without sound, without music, and then you start cutting to music, it's amazing how things seem to fall you know, just ahead of the beat, or just you can slide it around. And the, the rhythm and musical colors of the visuals you know, even they don't, they don't necessarily line right up, but the, it's, it's like a polyrhythm, you know, you, you have this one rhythm and then you lay it on top of the music or vice versa, you know, lay the music on top of the, the visuals, depending on what's most dominant, but, and you slide it around and, and then fine cut it and it, it's magic, you know, because the great thing about film compared to writing that I found liberating when I started working with, with images is you don't actually have to write the sentences. Well, you don't have to write the words. It's all there. You shoot the stuff and then you can move things around. You get these happy accidents, which you can do with writing as well, but it's a bit more laborious and sort of premeditated. Whereas with film, there's a sense that you can find lightning in a bottle every now and then. And, and music is a big part of that, but it's very important not to bring music in too early. He'll do the, the visual cut and he'll say, okay, this is where we need music. This is where we need music. So he, he actually sort of, he has the idea of music in before he's even hearing it. And Robert and I worked together. I mean, the thing about this film, because of the pandemic, our production schedule originally was six months shooting and editing while we were shooting and then editing afterwards. Because of COVID, the shooting schedule got stretched over two years and the editing got stretched too. And we ended up shooting so much and meeting new characters, new artists. I mean, one of our most important artists is somebody called Yuri Shimojo, who's a Japanese painter in New York. And I closed the door on, on new characters. And I ran into her through an artist in Italy who was, we were filming remotely, Marta Abbott, who was represented by the same gallery owner in Boston as Yuri Shimojo. And I met Yuri Shimojo and you've seen the film and this person who came in long after the door had closed, I say it turns out to be sort of the, the heart, the emotional heart of the film. Um, you know, next to Jason, Koji's kind of a showman. He's kind of a, a closer, but Yuri is, um, was incredible. And we never would have met her if it wasn't for the pandemic. So the great thing about documentary is it has to respond to what's going on in the world, to reality, and you have to be able to adapt to it because that's what documentary is about. And in this case, I think our film was stronger for the pandemic. I mean, I would have loved to have shot personally in Japan and in Italy and Carrara and in London, England and in Oslo, some of these other places we went to, but what you get is sometimes better. Yeah, and it doesn't show that there's any limitations. I mean, honestly, the uh, the film is pretty brilliant. I think you should check it out. Look, if you're in Calgary or if you're close to it, you want to go see it in person. The Color of Ink is the Alberta premiere as part of Cuff Docs. That's going to be happening Thursday, November 24th at 6.30 p.m. You know what? If you're not lucky enough, this is kind of festival circuit time. So if you're listening to this a little bit later, maybe the time has passed already. I'm sure there's going to be ways to find it because this is one of those NFB. Well, it's going right? to open probably uh, probably in yeah. March across the country. 
Oh, so fantastic. The, 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 National, the National Film Board is behind the film, which is amazing because they have yeah. resources, they have marketing, and I'm very lucky to have, they got it financed. And um, I'm very grateful to this uh, public agency that actually is not motivated by profit, but by art. <laughs> yeah, well, that probably means at some point I'm going to be talking to Catch at a Bach again, that's for sure. Uh, okay. <laughs> if you want to see Brian D. Johnson in the flesh, you can do that at the Globe Cinema in Calgary. And it's all part of Cuff Docs. Uh, the film Color of Ink is fantastic. I really implore you to check it out. Look, if you listen to this conversation, you already know Brian knows what he's talking about. Fantastic artist. Excellent on several different levels. But this film is one that you will definitely will stick with you visually. So that's why I think you should definitely find it. Seek it out no matter what. But if you happen to be in Calgary, Thursday, November 24th at 6.30 p.m., then you can see Brian and listen to all the fantastic things he's going to say after the film. Brian, thank you so much. It's been a real honor to talk to you. Uh, you know, I've seen you well, for many the, years and read your stuff, and it's uh, fantastic to be able to speak with you. Well, I'm I'm really uh, really humbled by this. It's 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 lovely to have done this, and it's so glad that you take the time and the care to do it the way you do. Thanks, thanks so much, Christian. It means a lot to me.